Okay, we're going to um, continue through the Psalms. We have one more week. I've really enjoyed this last three months of the Psalms. Um, this is our third week looking at Messianic Psalms. Uh, the first week we looked at Psalm chapter 2, which was the promise of the Messianic king that was going to come. He's going to establish his throne forever. Last week we looked at Psalm 22, which many people believe that this was a psalm that Jesus quoted in its entirety from the cross. It makes no sense in David's life. David prophesied Psalm 22. And so it gave us, as we read that, it put us up on the cross into the mind of Christ and what he was going through and his experiences that he was feeling from the cross. Now, Psalm 16, we could look at this. This is today. We could look at this from two different sort of angles. We could look at it from David's life in the Old Testament. And we could say, okay, he went through a crisis, something happened, and this is his what he wrote following it. Or we can look totally to the New Testament and say, wait, this was a, this of all the texts in the Bible, I think that this text in particular is a very critical text. I don't want to say it's like the most important because I don't think it's the most important. But as far as Psalms, this one is super, super critical, probably in the whole Old Testament. And the reason I say that is when the church was started at Pentecost, Peter, when he gives up to preach his first sermon to the church, he goes to Psalm 16. Paul, in, in Acts chapter 13, um, can we get the scriptures up here, please? Just, and just so you guys have where we're, it's all here so you don't have to like try to remember. There we go. Um, and, and in Acts 13, when Paul gets up to preach his first sermon, he goes to Psalm, six, or Psalm 16. And so we're going to do a little bit of both, but most of our attention is going to be focused in the New Testament. And it really falls into to this whole Christmas thing that we're celebrating. So I'm going to pray and ask God for help and, and our hearts to be softened. So, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. Lord, we thank you for your, your, your loving kindness in our life, Lord, for your faithfulness, Lord. And, Father, we pray that as we um, open up the scriptures, Lord, we ask that your spirit would illuminate uh, their meaning, that we would rightly understand them. Father, we pray that you would soften our hearts, Lord. Make us pliable, Lord. Help us to hear your voice through the word. We love you, Father. We praise you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So read with me in Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are in, in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their name, names upon my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. 
you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. And Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it's living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. We thank you, Lord, that it's good for all things. And Father, we ask as we begin to go through this that you would help us. We love you, Lord. We praise you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first verse of Psalm 16 covers, it's, it's the, the theme of this entire psalm. And it says, preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. Some have suggested, and I kind of agree with them, while Psalm 22 is the view from the cross, that this has been described as the psalm that gives a view from Gethsemane, that Jesus on the way to his, to his arrest, his betrayal, his crucifixion, that he went to this psalm and prayed this psalm. And I think there's a lot of validation towards this because he would pray this stuff. And then as we look at it, there's also a prophetic element that the early church went to this and said, you know what? It happened in Christ. And that's what we'll look at today. So he first turns to the Lord. He's going to Gethsemane, not a fun place. This is where he, as he prayed, the droplets of blood came out through his capillaries. He's praying his, his buddies are falling asleep on him. He says, hey, can't you guys stay awake for one hour? And he, he's calling out, preserve me, O Lord, for I take refuge in you. We could probably spend all day learning. I mean, I could talk about this for hours, that when hard times come, it, we need to take refuge in the Lord. When good times happen, we need to take refuge in the Lord. We need to abide in Christ always because there's security there. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. I, in studying for this, I, one of the guys I read a lot is J. Vernon McGee because it, it I like him and I hear his, his voice come through his writings. And he talked about his grandson. He's like, oh, I can't tell you how good it makes me feel as an old man when my little grandson hops in my lap and says, you're my grandpa. He's like, oh, it makes his old bones just feel good. And when he said that, I was like, man, I know what he's talking about. Often my daughter, Grace, she'll come up to me. She'll throw her arm around the back of my, almost to where it hurts. And it's like, come on, you don't have to take me down. You know, I got, dad's got a bad back. And she looks at me and she says, Dad, you're my dad. And I'm like, oh, it just feels so good. I mean, it's kind of silly. She says, Dad, I know who she's talking to. She obviously, in addressing me, knows that I'm her father. But then she's like, Dad, you're my dad. And I think that God wants this from us, that we'd be driving around, that we, as we see the beauty that he's created, as we have a relationship, God, you're my God. It's personable. We're not talking about some God that's out in space somewhere, some God that's kind of not close. This is, no, the creator and sustainer of the universe. Psalm 8, when I consider the heavens and all the earth and what you've created, this is Gunnar's translation, that you would consider mankind, that you would consider me. Who am I? And now that God's, we're his children, we say, God, you're my God. I love you, Lord. Man, you're so good to me. And this is from Gethsemane. So this isn't just when things are good. This is like things can be going bad. In the midst of trials, Lord, it's okay. You're my God. You'll sustain me. He goes on in verse 3 is, For the saints who are in the earth, they are majestic ones in whom is all my delight. And so here we see Jesus from Gethsemane. He's going to die for the church. 
the church is his bride. And he looks at the saints. Now, as a little disclaimer for saints, I was raised in a church where saint meant that they had done something that qualified them for sainthood. That is not biblical. Saint in the scriptures is one who is set apart, one who is holy. Holy means to be set apart for something, for God's use. And he says, for those saints who are in the earth, they are my majestic ones in whom is all my might. When we went through Ephesians, when we go through any of the epistles, it addresses the saints. These are people who have believed in Jesus. They've received the spirit by belief. Those are saints set apart for God's purposes. And here from Gethsemane, a thousand for the saints, those who are set apart for the Lord. This is where the Lord's delight is. Now, verse four contrasts those who have wandered from the Lord. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall pour. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. Now, I want to point out, so it says the sorrows of those that have wandered off another God. And you'll see that God is in italics, or it should be. Just a word of caution. I read one time that there was a pastor somewhere, you know, by the way you tell the story, it sounds like he's down south somewhere. And he would only preach with words that were in italics because he thought they were the really important ones. Well, if you see a word that's italicized, that means it's not in the original language, but the translators, the context kind of puts the meaning there. And so it literally reads the sorrows of those who have bartered for another. Well, turning away from the Lord, they've put their trust in other things. Their sorrows are going to be multiplied. And idols can be anything. I mean, you maybe have watched the Brady Bunch show where Peter has a little idol around his neck and he like, I, may, I mean, I wasn't around. I've, I've watched a lot of reruns. I might have just like kind of like, oh, I'm using the Brady Bunch illustration. But how many saw that episode where he had the idol and he went surfing and all this stuff happened? He broke his leg. Okay, we got one guy that admitted that he's seen this. Everywhere they go, I think it was a two-parter. They passed this idol. They thought it was a cool thing in Hawaii. That every bad thing started happening. And they finally realized, oh, this idol's doing it. This little, you know, trinky-dink little, you know, piece of necklace. It could, well, it could be an idol. could be your bank account. And I tell you, money isn't just an idol to have a lot of it. Like sometimes people that have a lot of money, that becomes their idol. That becomes their God. But a lot of times people who are poor, they say, oh, if only my bank account was loaded, then I'd be happy. That's not true. That's idolatry. And it goes nowhere for the people that have idols that serve other gods. He goes on and he says, the Lord, verse five, the Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. It's interesting. The portion inheritance of my cup as he was in Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, Lord, if this cup could pass. So be it, but but not my will, but your will be done. But as we read this psalm. He, this is not good. This is a bad situation. But he talks with real colorful language. Like the lands have fallen to me in pleasant places. It's like, man, when the surveyor came and did my property, he gave me hundreds of square miles. Everything's going great. No. It reminds me of the psalm we covered last week. Remember Psalm 22, verse 10. From the, from the cross, upon you I was cast from birth. 
you have been my God from my mother's womb. And this picture of him on the cross saying, you know what? This is God's will in my life, and I'm going to be happy with it. In Timothy, it says, and I messed it up, but this is my trans. This is me and my memory inability, but I'll probably get it this time. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Something, something close to that. And when we walk with the Lord and we realize that our God kind of controls our path and he, he puts things, if we have a flat tire, it didn't escape him. And we're able to turn and say, thank you, Lord. I'm so thankful for all that you're doing for me. Thank you that I have a car that has a flat tire. There are all kinds of people in the world who don't even have a car. This is when you start. It's all in how you view your outlook changes everything. He goes on in verse 7. I will bless the Lord. I will praise the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. It's like Gethsemane at the night. I don't know. Praying. The Lord is guiding him. He's praising the Lord. He's seeking his joy. Normally at night is we can't sleep because we have anxiety. We have worry. We have concerns about something. So the nighttime is when attacks sort of come. But he says, my mind instructs me at night. The Lord is guiding him. Now, we're going to shift here. I'm going to read the last four verses because I want us to read it in this translate in the in the Old Testament. But then we're going to shoot over to Acts chapter two and we're going to really address this psalm from Acts chapter two. But verse eight reads, I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Now go with me to the New Testament, to Acts chapter 2. So in Acts chapter 2, Peter is going to use this text to help explain what's going on. Very first sermon that is ever recorded of Peter after the ascension of Christ. We're going to pick up in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, but I want to give us a little survey of what's happened up to this point. Acts kind of begins post-resurrection from the grave. Jesus lives for 40 days. He walks about the earth. People see him. He appeared, did all kind of crazy stuff. It was a lot of fun. I'm really excited about going through Luke because it's some time with the Lord. Then at 40 days, he, he tells him Acts 1.8. Um, this is Gunner's Bible memory. This is like quizzing myself. Um, For you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the, to the remotest part of the earth. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That's the part I was missing. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the outermost part of the world. And then all of a sudden, he floats up. And they're going, what just happened? And then they're still staring. There are the angels appearing. What, guys, what's going on here? Go to Jerusalem. Wait. And so they're waiting. Ten days later, they're sitting there praying. There's like 80 of them. They're praying. They're praying. They're praying. What's going on around here? All of a sudden, boom, Holy Spirit shows up, comes upon them. The guys, and during this time, it's important to understand. See, the whole known world had been forced to speak Greek by Alexander the Great. Every, the Jews were scattered. Jews were living all over the world. Many of them had lost their ability to speak Hebrew. So they would speak, if they went to 
Let's just even use countries around here. So they went to Mexico. They're going to start speaking Spanish. They go to Quebec. They're going to be speaking French. And that was the language that was their like native tongue. But Alexander the Great said, everybody has to speak Greek. It's going to be the worldwide language. So everybody had to operate, go to the store, everything in Greek. But if you were from the United States, you, your native tongue, your mother tongue would be English. So that would be your language that you'd be most comfortable in. But you were forced to speak Greek everywhere you went. So here we have the early, these people that received the spirit. I have it written down here somewhere, but it was like 90 guys or 90 people. Where is it? Uh, but there's under 100 people, we'll say. Um, I'm hoping it'll come out to me because it's right here, right in front of me. Um, 120 verse 15. So there's 120 people in this room. They're Jewish. They're from Jerusalem. They speak Greek and Hebrew. All of a sudden, the spirit comes. And because of the feast, there was people from all around the world there celebrating the Passover. And these 120 people start speaking in every different language that they didn't know but was a known language. And we hear them in uh, verse chapter 2, verses um, 9, or verse 8, we'll read. And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthens and Medes and Elamites and residents of Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt, the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Christians, Arabs. We hear it in our own tongues, speaking of the mighty deeds of God. They're amazed. What is going on? It would be like when, God, when I went to Mongolia last year, suddenly I land out in the world and I start speaking perfect Mongolian. And Richard can attest that I was not close to that. But they'd be like, how is this guy speaking Mongolian? And now some of them that were a little upset about the whole thing, they said, ah, they're drunk. They've been drinking. Because drunkenness leads to perfect phonics and knowing languages. It's a perfect, like... It's normally the opposite if you've ever dealt with somebody that's drunk. They can barely handle their own language. They sound like they're speaking a different language, but it's not a language. And so then Peter stands up and he says, listen, let me explain to you what's going on. The spirit has come and he goes to Joel chapter two and he begins to read this passage explaining to them what had happened. He's like, ha, this has been told of for long ago. He's trying to remove this barrier of drunkenness that they put up. But you say, oh, Gunner, but you said that the first text that he preached from was Psalm 16, which is true. This, he's just trying to remove this barrier. He's not getting to the heart of his message. And so in verse 22, when he kind of clears there, he's like, guys, listen, it's only nine in the morning. They're not drunk at nine in the morning. This is what happened. The spirit came. He's speaking in languages. It's as the prophet Joel said what happened, that they'd received power and it happened. Then in verse 22, he begins. He says, men of Israel, listen to these words. I love the Peter post-resurrection. Peter's like a go-getter. But before Jesus died, I mean, he denied Jesus three times. He, at one case, had said that he started swearing, using profanity, that they wouldn't associate him with Jesus. When, I think it was when the little 12-year-old girl asked him, oh, don't you know that guy? But after the resurrection, everything in Peter's life changed. And he said, Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders and signs. He said, do you remember Jesus? He did all these miracles, multiplied the bread, 
fed people, healed people, all of these miracles, wonders, and signs pointing to the fact that he's the Messiah, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Nobody there could deny what he was doing. They executed him for these very reason, for this very reason. He goes on to say, this man, speaking of Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, he said, listen, God, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. Jesus wasn't killed because man nailed the nails into his hand. He was killed because God predetermined this to happen, that we might have a relationship with him. And he says, God, um, verse 23, this man delivered over to you by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. I have a feeling that the emotions in the crowd at this time sort of shifted. Okay, Peter, you've gone too far. You've gone too far. Where were you when they were doing this? You were denying that you even knew him. Yet now he's pointing the fig, finger at, at, we know, at least 3,000 people, probably more. Because I don't think everybody believed. So this is a huge crowd. He saw what they did to Jesus 50 days earlier. And he would face the same sort of death. Except when they were executing him, he said, I'm not worthy to be executed like he was. Crucify me upside down. And they crucified Peter upside down. This is a, a coward turning into a bold man because the resurrection changed everything. And verse 24, I love their, these but gods. The great buts in the Bible, as Charles Swindoll says, put a real solid name behind that statement. But we read, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. You know, studying for this passage this time, we just went through Acts. But this struck me in a new way. It says, put an end to the agony of death. How many here have experienced death? We've all, the longer you live, you have a friend, a relative, somebody you love dies. How many people enjoy it when you lose a loved one? Even if they're, you know, say a little elderly lady that's 250 years old. Because that's, that's, quali- that's qualifying for an elderly lady. If you're over 200, you're elderly. I've learned to play it safe. <clears throat> Even then, it's not pleasant. The agony of death. And you know why? The reason it's so painful is because we were created for eternity. It was never God's plan that we were to die. And so when we face death, I don't care what your religious background is, something grips you deep within. When you look at a dead anything, we don't want to touch it. We don't want to be near it. It's just like, this isn't right. Why is that? Because God created us for eternity. Sin entered the world, and then death began to reign from that moment on. And I love this saying. It just, God raised him up again putting an end to the agony of death. When I hear the word agony, I think of the agony of defeat, you know, the great Olympic skier that crashes. Like, agony. He put an end to it. We read in Thessalonians that we no longer mourn like those who don't believe because Jesus conquered the grave. So when when a Christian dies, it's a celebration. I'll never forget Carla from a church way back when she was a children ministries person. And it was at a mega church. She got pancreatic cancer and she died very quickly. And uh, I often 
in talking about her funeral, I, I accidentally say her wedding. And Anna's always elbowing, Connor, it was her funeral. And I was like, oh, but the, you, this was like the atmosphere, the climate of a Christian funeral. Oh, man. It's like they're with the Lord. Man, they're feeling sorry for us. We cry not because we're sad at what happened. We're sad. We're crying because we're sad that we no longer have a relationship, that, that we have to wait and to see them again. But the resurrection put an end to this agony because it was impossible for him to be held in its power. That's death. For David says of him, okay, class, pay attention here. This is Psalm 16. This is where he says, for David says, now he's going to quote Psalm 16. And I want to say something. It's going to sound different than we just read. And the reason for that is, I just explained about all the languages. Most Jewish people during this time that were there for Pentecost, most Jewish people, period, had lost their ability to speak and to read Hebrew because Alexander the Great had forced everybody to speak Greek. And as this happened, they came up with a translation called the Septuagint. It's the Old Testament, and it's written in Greek. We still have it today. And so during this time, Peter is going to quote from the Greek translation. And so that's the variance. There's no controversy in the difference, but it's going to sound different, and we'll see it in the English, and that's because he's quoting from a Greek Bible. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And now verse 29, Peter's going to begin to preach and explain this Old Testament passage that was written some thousand years beforehand. He's going to explain it to the church, the first sermon that the Christian church ever heard. And he says, brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. This is David. This is the man David, the the second king of Israel that they adored. He says, listen, he died and we buried him. Now, he probably he wasn't cremated and he didn't just get like a little, you know, like a little tombstone, like a little six by six piece of thing. Say, no, that's King David. He probably had like a huge mausoleum. I'm sure you can go there and still see his thing. I didn't do it. The biggest one I saw, I asked text. I'm like, hey, whose tomb is that? And he's like, "Um, now I blanked. Zechariah, I think he said, some, some big, I'm like, like from the Bible, he's like, yeah, that's the prophet right there. Huge thing. So David would have a huge thing. And he said, listen, we all know that David died and he's buried right over there. We can all go visit his tomb. So when he wrote this, he couldn't have been talking about himself. He said, listen, David was died and buried, verse 29, and his tomb is with us today, verse 30. And so because he, that's David, was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he would neither was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer a case. Peter says, listen, David knew. He quotes the first thing. It's from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. It's the Davidic covenant. There's the Abrahamic covenant, which is found in Genesis chapter 12 and 15. The promise that was given to Abraham that through your seed, all nations will be blessed. Later on, as this was unfolding, David came on scene. God made Davis a promise known as the Davidic covenant, saying that through you, 
the Messiah will come and he will reign and rule forever. And he's saying, listen, he knew that through him, he knew he wasn't going to live forever, but he knew when he wrote this prophetically that through his lineage, the Messiah would come. And Peter says he came and Jesus died. He overcame the grave. He never, his body never saw decay. This is what Psalm 16 is speaking of. Verse 32, he's going to continue. This Jesus, God raised up again. This is like the fourth time we've seen the resurrection, the resurrection, the resurrection. You go, Gunnar, don't you know this isn't Easter? I did not confuse my holidays. But you can't celebrate Christmas without the coming of Jesus is one thing, but it takes the death, burial, resurrection, his whole life. And because this is a holiday when, you know, you go to church twice a year for some people, Christmas and Easter. And so I got to make clear that the gospel gets presented clearly. And you, you, you can't just have the birth. You need to know the whole picture. Verse 32, this Jesus, God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. How many people were there? We know at least 3,000 people believed. We know that there was at least 120. And I would speculate that if 3,000 believed, there were probably 3,000 that didn't believe. Just that would be a very gracious number, maybe even more. He looks at all of them. This is Peter 50 days before was running from a 12-year-old girl. Points his finger at all of them and says, you killed him. But God raised him from the dead. And you are all witnesses. They would have looked at him and said, you're crazy. He did not rise from the dead. They couldn't say that. They saw him. They knew he was killed. He walked publicly 40 days. He didn't do it like before. He'd just show up at places and kind of do stuff because he was no longer operating under his, his body that was, you know, the, the emptying of his ability. So he'd just like show up in rooms. They'd panic. Well, how, how'd you get here? I'm God. I can do whatever I want, but I'm kind of hungry. You guys can offer me some fish yet? You know, like, so they all saw the risen Christ. Verse 33, he continues, therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, speaking of the ascension, Acts 1.8, as he gave the saying, he's up in the clouds, and he's going to come back that same way. To the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this, which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says. So he's going to point to another scripture that David wrote, Psalm 110, which we're going to study next week on Christ being exalted to heaven. It says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your servants a footstool for your feet. Verse 36. I love Peter. Like, like this is my this is my favorite line in the whole like when there's smack talk kind of in the Bible. Like, I love it. I love it when God stumps men. He looks at him. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus, whom you crucified. And he walks over. I don't know if he sits down, but he's done. He's like, okay, guys, let's worship. Let's fellowship. I remember when I taught on this, like last year, I beat myself up over, the, like if I leave the sprinklers on and I forget to turn, man, I like beat myself up. If you, if I make a mistake, I cut myself no slack. I've never accidentally killed the Messiah. 
And I can only imagine them like Peter building his case from scriptures and all of the crowd going, oh, oh, like we just, it was only two months ago that we were saying, let his blood be on us and our children forever. Uh, oh, no. And Peter's done. Peter's not giving them any hope. But you know what? You need to see your sin first. Unless you realize that your sin is really foul before the sight of the Lord, that it separates you from him, you have no need for a savior. Peter's done. And check out their reaction. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. I bet. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Guys, don't go away. Stop. What do we do? Is there any forgiveness for us? Is there any way we can get out of this? We didn't mean to kill the Messiah. Please don't leave us now. Is there any hope from us? And Peter said to them, repent, each of you be baptized in the name of the Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and your children. Notice that. 50 days ago, they were wanting the blood to be on their children. Forgiveness for you and your children. And I'm going to pause until I find my place here. 39, there we are. Okay. And for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words... He solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. He said, listen, there's forgiveness available to you. I don't know what sins you guys have done. I really, I mean, I don't care. I want you guys to be walking with the Lord, but we've all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. But I guarantee God has forgiveness for each one of us. He paid for it all on the cross, as that old hymn says. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. He offers them salvation. Verse 41, we see, So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day they were added about 3,000 souls. So we see the early church goes from 120 to 3,120. They believed they, they got the gospel. And today, as I was going through this, seeing the resurrection and the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, it seemed appropriate to do communion again. I can't, you know, a bunch of people, it's kind of funny. Last week I wore dark pants and I threw a bunch of people for a loop. The two weeks before that I tucked in my shirt and threw a bunch of people for a loop. Today I did communion two weeks in a row and people are going, wait, we just did communion last week. What's going on around here? It's okay, it's okay. <laughs> The Bible says for as often as you do this. So that could be every day. That could be once a week. It could be every month. It could be once a quarter, just for as often as you do it. I think that the big picture of things is I think that the church has, we've kind of turned communion, we've made it more distant from ourselves than what Jesus wanted it to be. Um, let me explain. As, uh, on the night in which he was betrayed, it was the Passover meal. They didn't know what was going to happen. And they're having their meal. And Jesus says, oh, can you pass me the bread? 
he breaks it. And he says, ah, this is my body that's broken for you. And they kind of looked at him like, man, Jesus is saying crazy stuff. <laughs> no idea what he's talking about. Here you go, Jesus. And then they, they go, oh, can I get some wine? Like he gets a wine and he says, oh, this is, a, this is my blood that will be poured out for you. It's a new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. He hadn't been to the cross yet. So I can't, I have a feeling a bunch of them were like kind of nodding and, you know, before we went to Mongolia, we met this family and we were invited to go to dinner with them because they were in, in East Asia and they worked for a, a, a very well-known company. And we went to the meal and the guy's talking about cell phone type stuff. I had no clue what he was talking about. But I smiled. I didn't know if I didn't understand or it was like an ambient noise, but I really didn't understand. But what do you do in these situations? You smile. You say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're 30 or 40 minutes into this conversation. I'm in way too deep to kind of like say I've been lost for 40 minutes. And he looks at and he says something about 3G. Finally, I heard a, like a little grain of something. Like I know that my phone says 3G on it. And I said, oh, 3G. I, and he's like, oh, you didn't have a – and I'm like, ooh, busted. Like I have, and then like the next day I emailed them back because I saw that when they emailed out, I did reply all and just say, hey, we had a great time. Thanks for – we look forward to seeing you when we come through. And then I realized that the email address for the wife, it was postgraduate at harvard.edu, and his was postgraduate at mit.edu. And I was like, oh, God. What was I trying to – you know? And I kind of think that they're like, yes, Lord, Master Rabbi. You know, they don't want to be dimed out for not understanding. But he knew. But the Lord brought it back to them after the fact, and all the lights started coming on. But I think almost more appropriately is he did this. Then he was executed. He died for those three days. I don't know if they ate during those three days. Normally, when you're all stressed out and anxiety, your hunger goes away. But then for the rest of their lives... Whenever the bread was passed and the juice, I just hear, this is my body, this is my blood. I kind of, I don't know what, I'm pretty sure that for lunch today, you guys aren't going to go down to um, Olive Garden and say, can I get uh, one of those little like broken crackers that's about that big and and a really little small thing of juice? Because I want to have, that's going to be my lunch. We don't do that. When you go to Olive Garden, you're like, can you, can, you, can you please bring like three more orders of those garlic breadsticks, please? I know it's just to me and my wife, but we're really, because it's so good. But it was like a common, like this is for the rest of their life, I believe when they ate and drank, they were reminded of what they saw. It was a perfect symbol for post-traumatic stress disorder. Like this was his body and blood. It was shed for me. I need to live for him. <clears throat> and so that's, I don't know, I was, I'm off track here, but that's why we're doing communion today. And I want us to kind of, as we take it, to kind of imagine us at the table. I got to get back on track. I started thinking about Olive Garden breadsticks. Um, okay, so it's Christmas. What does this have to do with Christmas? You know, first and foremost, we give gifts. We buy gifts. We exchange gifts. Buying gifts is great. It's fun. I, I actually like giving better than receiving. Like, it's just fun getting gifts. When you receive gifts, even like today, like it's overwhelming. It's like, what do you do? Like there's nothing you can do. And I like to be on the other end of it. Yes. Don't we give gifts because the three kings gave 
Oh, yeah, it's I'm okay. Yeah, yeah, gifts. They brought gifts. <laughs> little, little, we sang Little Drummer Boy. Like, and, and I remember last week somebody requested Little, little, little Drummer Boy. And I, I'm like, wow. Rick's like, well, we, I think we can do that. And I'm like, well, I don't know. He might not do it because I might have edited it. I might like, you know, I don't even know what it's about. Like, all I know is rum, pum, pum, pum. Like, what is, like, what does it have to do with Chris? And then the person who asked for it said, listen, it's a little drummer boy. He has nothing to bring. So all he brings is his bringing his, and then you read, you listen to the words and you're like, wow. So we give gifts. We like giving gifts. But the best gift we can ever have, the theme that I've been going over is 1 Timothy 1.15. And there it says, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among who I am foremost of all. So we celebrate his, his birth, the little baby Jesus, because he lived that perfect life, that when he was nailed on the cross, Jesus saw, the Lord saw our sin placed upon him. He committed no sin to have this done to him. And then in believing in him, when the Lord looks at us, that perfect life of Christ is imputed to us. That's a great gift. But how do we make this happen? How do we go from this is the story of Jesus. He was born. He lived the perfect life. We, in our quote-unquote Christian society, it's, it, it means almost nothing. You know, there's so many people that say they're Christian. And on the day of their death, from I think it's Matthew 17, they'll come up to him and say, he says, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do miracles in your name? He said, depart from me. I never knew you. And so because I love Paul so much in the Bible, and Paul did use this in his first sermon, I want to go over to Acts chapter 13. The, like the whole so what? Like how do we, Jesus, how do we receive this gift? And over in Acts chapter 13, in verses 38, right above this, you will see starting in verse 30. I'm not going to go there, but God raised him from the dead. Verse 33, he raised up Jesus. Verse 34, he raised him up from the dead. The resurrection changed everything. And then in verse 35, it says, therefore, he also says in another Psalm, quoting Psalm 16, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. This is the key. This is, the, this is what I'm getting at. Verse 38 and 39. So how, how does this make a difference in our life? What if we have guilt? We feel like we're separated from God. Our sin is beating us up. How do we receive this forgiveness? How do we become children of God? Well, in verse 38, this is critical for us to pay attention to. You might have been in church your whole life, and you might not be a Christian because it's not about going to church. That's not how you earn your way to salvation. Verse 38, Paul says, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. After he talks about Psalm 16, he says, Listen, guys, men and women, Forgiveness for your sin is available to you. It's proclaimed to you, verse 39. And through him, everyone who goes to church every Sunday, goes to Sunday school, helps people cross the street. No, it doesn't give a bunch of dues. It says one thing to get right with God. 
What's the word, class? Can we get it? Pop quiz. What's the, what, what's the one thing we have to do? Believe. Believe. In my whole study of the New Testament, the Old Testament, I can find nowhere a sinner's prayer. I can't. I'm, I'm all for praying after you. Like, I'm all for praying. But the pro, like, right when you believe, you're, Ephesians 1.13 says, you're see, after hearing the message of the gospel and believing, you're sealed. Boom. To the day of redemption. And Paul says it here. Now check it out. Everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Let's, let's just say, like, there's 613 commands in the Old Testament that, that, that the Hebrew scholars have counted. I haven't personally done it, but I'm pretty sure it's valid. Let's just even take the Ten Commandments. We cannot keep the Ten Commandments. You can try. You can try. And it's just going to lead you to frustration because we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all are against him. And if he said, oh, just keep the Ten Commandments. We learn in Galatians at the end of chapter 2, I believe, it says that the law was given as a school teacher to lead you to Christ because we can't do it. There is nothing we can do to right our sin before the Lord. But Jesus could. His sacrifice was complete on the cross. And we're freed from all things. Galatians chapter 4, for free, no, for 5. For it was for freedom that Christ sent you free. All in that chapter, for freedom, for freedom, for freedom. Then we see the fruit of the Spirit. The law cannot save you. Good works cannot save you. One thing can save you, and that's Jesus. And how do we receive this relationship? One word. Believe. Believe. How do we do it? Believe. How do we do it? Believe. Believe. It's not complicated. And so we're going to... Now, believe can be difficult. Good thing I looked at my notes here. You know, out in the foyer, there's the case for Christ. They're free. Take one. If you're struggling with belief, the thing I love about Jesus is the things he did, his life, it was public before thousands and thousands of people. Like to think about that we believe because the testimony of this early church continued sharing the word, proclaiming the good news. People were killing them, burning them alive at the stake, yet they wouldn't shut up. And if you follow the lineage down, we heard ultimately because of somebody back then kept speaking it and it kept passing on. And the case for Christ is a great book because it looks at all of the evidence and it puts some meat behind your faith. You never can remove the whole faith barrier. But when you start looking at systems of of belief, worldviews, Christianity, which says it's done, that Jesus claimed to be his God, you start looking at all of stuff you have to, it takes faith to believe in what happened. Now, on the other side of this spectrum, it takes way more faith, in my opinion, to believe the stuff that they're going. If you just go watch the Discovery Channel, like when they start talking about the cosmos and stuff, like as a believer, like I, it takes a lot of faith. You just keep compounding billions and billions of years. Like if you have more time, then it makes it easier to swallow the stuff that they're putting out there. That time becomes the God here. But God is, 
delivered in a way that there's evidence that we can place our faith upon that's solid, that's reliable. And The Case for Christ is a great book to help you along that road. And so we're going to have communion. The guys are going to come forward. And communion, you know, believing, I know I sound like a one-hit wonder every week. Jesus died from the grave. He rose again. There's salvation there. See, it's not about just getting fire insurance. That Let me explain. When I was seven years old, I trusted in Jesus. And then from that moment, I've lived, I've lived my whole life the way I want to do it. But I know that when I was a little kid, I believed. But there's been no fruit in my life. I'm, I'm rebelling against God. See, the Christian life is about believing. Yes, once you, once you believe, you're sealed. I'm totally security of the believer for eternity. But then it's about abiding with him. And so we, we're going to pass out the communion and the, the cracker and the juice. Hold on to it. Before you guys pass it out, just hang on a second. The first part when you get it, we're going to sing that song, The Old Rugged Cross. And there's a verse, 1 John 1, 9, that says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That there's conviction of sin, not condemnation of sin for people who've trusted in Christ. And we forgive. We, we confess and he forgives. And as we, this juice goes out for this communion, I just want, just imagine that this was like a regular meal. Going to give you guys bread and juice, compliments of the church, big meal, you know, stale crackers. And, but remember, Jesus at that dinner table passed it around so that every time when they ate, they, I'm the bread of life. This is my body, this is my blood, because we need to remember it's all about Him. He did it all. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord. That all of these prophecies were fulfilled in Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the resurrection. That Jesus came, born of a virgin, fulfilling prophecy. That he lived a perfect life, being God. That he was nailed to a cross, according to prophecy, thousands of years beforehand. Lord, the data before us, Lord, the evidence of who Christ is is overwhelming. That he conquered death and he ascended into heaven in front of all. Lord, we thank you that our faith is based upon substance. Father, we pray that you would increase our faith, Lord, that you would help us to abide in you, that you'd help us, Lord, to walk with you day by day, that we would cry out, God, you are my God. Father, we thank you that there's relationship here. We thank you, Lord, that you care about the little things in our life. Father, we pray that through this Christmas season, Lord, as we talk about the baby Jesus, Lord, that you would help us to be a light in this dark world. Father, we pray that we would carry this torch forward like previous generations have. And Father, as we pass out these elements and we hold on to them, Lord, we pray that you would just bring to mind, Lord, areas in our life that we're struggling with, Lord, areas that we're falling short. Father, we pray that you would help us to, just to confess to you, Lord, that we would surrender our life to you and allow you to do your good work in our lives. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for uh, all that you've done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. On a hill 
far away stood an old rugged cross. And Father, we do thank you, Lord, that through Christ, forgiveness was made possible. We thank you, Lord, that his death on the cross was sufficient for us. Father, we thank you, Lord, that it's not about our good works, for we have none, for you're our only good. And Father, I pray for each one of us, Lord, that you would help us to understand this gift. Lord, I know for me early in my Christian life, Lord, of of trusting in you every week, Lord, for salvation, thinking that I'd lost it from from the failures that week. For the gospel's so simple, Lord, it confounds us that you would give it all, Lord, for us. And all we have to do is believe. So, Father, we pray for each person here, Lord, that as we are walking with you, Lord, if there's people that haven't trusted in you yet, Father, that you would help them to come to a place of belief, that they would trust upon you. Father, we pray that you would strengthen our faith in you. And, Father, we thank you, Lord, as the author of Hebrews says, Lord, that Lord, as as an earthly father disciplines us for our good out of love, that the Father in heaven disciplines us, Lord, out of love. So we thank you, Lord, that as Christians we experience your discipline. Father, we pray that as you are guiding and directing us, Lord, we pray that you would help us um, to yield to your spirit, that we would confess our sin. And, Lord, we want true fellowship with you. We long to abide with you day in and day out. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so as we hold this little broken cracker and this little juice... We do it because on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, as they were having dinner, just a a Passover meal, he passed the bread and said, this is my body. It's going to be broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So whenever you do this, we think of Jesus. Whenever you eat your bread, like make a bologna sandwich this week and go, man, at the Sea of Galilee, with two loaves of bread, Jesus multiplied the bread and the fish. He said, I'm the bread of life. His body was broken for us. Our desire, hunger points us to him. And so when we eat bread, when we have a cracker, we're reminded of what he did for us. And then he said, hey, can you pass me the wine? He took the wine. He said, this is the new covenant in my blood. I'm going to raise from the dead. This is life. Not, not this itself, but through Jesus. We do this in remembrance. And he said that, and they walked out of there. They walked to the Garden of Gethsemane, and they started praying. And quite possibly a prayer that Jesus prayed, certainly it was, we know from the scriptures that it applies to him, is Psalm 16, beginning in verse 8. I have set the Lord continually before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices, for my, my flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. And see, it didn't end with a broken body. His body never saw decay. Jesus is alive today, reigning and ruling at the right hand of the Father. We're asked, we're commanded in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that as often as we do this, that we proclaim his death until he comes. Jesus is coming back with a bang, the same way he departed. 
He's coming back. And we're told, we're reminded when we take this, that he's trusted us to share the good news with others. So we need to do that. So I'm going to pray. We're going to take communion. and Take it when you're ready. Father, I just... Lord, your loving kindness endures forever. We thank you, Lord, that you love us so much, that you're merciful to us. Father, help us to to know you ever closer, Lord. Day by day, we long to have this relationship with you. Father, we pray that as we take this communion, we are reminded, Lord, that your body was broken for us, Lord, that you did it all. We thank you that in believing, Lord, we have life. We have forgiveness of sins. Father, that you are alive, that death could not hold you in the grave. We thank you, Lord, that we no longer have to fear death. And Father, we pray, Lord, as long as you keep us here in this earth, Lord, as long as we have breath, Father, help us to see your will in our life. Lord, give us um, the courage, Lord, to speak the gospel when you've called us to. Lord, help us to be a light to our friends and family and our coworkers and people around us. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as you're able.